Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I'm wondering if you've ever experienced a situational whiplash. That is, having two situations totally juxtaposed, uh, but brought together in a way that brings shock. Uh, I was talking with somebody recently about their wedding day, and they said it was sunny. My very complicated family was actually on their best behavior. Uh, The food was great. The dancing was magnificent. And then my bride-to-be go to the hotel, and then a fight breaks out. The biggest fight we've ever had. (laughs) Juxtaposition. I was also speaking to one of you who had a a child uh, make for you uh, in in class this lovely birthday present. They come home, they present this gift to you uh, with such gratitude in their eyes, only to be reprimanded later in the day by you. And then the child says, I hate you, and I wish I never got this for your birthday. Juxtaposition. Um, I have a friend named Alan who's an Anglican priest in South Carolina. Alan does not make a lot of money, but he loves music and saved month after month to buy a $2,000 Martin guitar. Some of you know how glorious that is. Perfect tone, everything else. Well, the three days after the purchase, he heard the unfortunate sound of breaking wood in the living room, with a corresponding voice that said, Dad is going to kill you. (laughs) Juxtaposition. Well, we have a juxtaposition in our gospel lesson for the first Sunday in Lent. I mean, Jesus' baptism and then straight into the desert, right? Uh, We have from the water to the wasteland, from the voice of the Father to the voice of Satan. You couldn't have a more awkward juxtaposition than that. And I want to speak about these two scenes today by addressing the subjects of belovedness and affliction. Because that's what we see in these passages, belovedness and affliction. And then we'll see how those texts echo into our own experience. But let's start with belovedness, this grand moment of Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan. The text begins by saying this, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. I think it must not be lost on us how shocking this scene really is. Remember what John's baptism is for? Its mission statement, its purpose, was to take reprobates, or morally untouchable sorts, and rectify the situation by giving them a public cleansing and washing. So this was only for sinners to apply for non-sinner citizenship. And there's Jesus, who wades into dirty baptismal water with street thugs and jihadists and cult members and rapists. And he makes his place among them. And Jesus, by doing so, is deliberately, publicly, and shockingly identifying with moral misfits. 
By the way, this baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan is a precursor to the cross. And when Jesus looks toward the cross, looks toward that time when he will be fully displayed as, um, as a sinner who deserved a death, even though that wasn't true, when he would fully identify with the sinful condition of humanity, he spoke about that forthcoming moment as his future baptism, that he was going to be baptized in blood on the cross. So it's a shocking scene where the innocent Christ aligns himself with people that are anything but innocent. And within this shocking scene, something even more shocking occurs. A sublime Trinitarian manifestation in which God the Father, Son, and Spirit show themselves in unity in history at this moment. And so we have the Son who goes for baptism, the Spirit who descends as a dove from the heavens, and the Father who speaks audibly. And the Father's selected words are these, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, when God the Father speaks in Scripture, that's important. Obviously, because it's God's voice, but moreover, because it's so rare. God the Father does not audibly speak much in the New Testament at all. Only speaks audibly in the life of Jesus three times. Once in the Garden of the Gethsemane, according to the Gospel of John. Once at Jesus' transfiguration. And once at Jesus' baptism. What's fascinating is two out of the three public statements of God the Father are nearly identical. And they have to do with belovedness. Two out of three belovedness. At the baptism and at transfiguration, God the Father says something to the effect of, this is or you are my beloved son with whom or with you I am well pleased. So two-thirds of the time that God speaks audibly, it has to do with Jesus's belovedness as a son. To break that down just a little bit, he's called a son. Now that's not unheard of in Israelite theology within the corpus of the Old Testament. Israel collectively, corporately, is understood to be a son of Yahweh or a son of the great father. This is why the psalmist can say, out of Egypt you called your son. Out of Egypt you called your son, meaning you extracted Israel as a collective out of captivity and bondage because of your favor towards them. But here, the voice is not speaking about Israel in general. The voice from the heavens gets very specific, narrowing down sonship to only one Israelite, Jesus, the one who wades in the water with the sinners. That is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, Jesus' family already knew about Jesus' divine parentage. When the angel announced Mary's surprise pregnancy, the angel said that he... Uh, will be the Son of God. And so that's already in uh, Jesus' family vocabulary. But at this baptismal moment, that private knowledge about Jesus' sonship is now being made public for the whole world. As the sky is torn in two, as the dove descends, and as the Father announces, you are my beloved Son. And now the world, at least the world who was there at that moment, knows it. Jesus is the unique son, the fulfillment of true Israel, the only true Israelite to have ever lived. There he is, being baptized in the River Jordan. But note he's not just a son. There's affective, emotional language being given to the son. He is a beloved son. And here we see the raw emotion of heaven, the emotion of heaven. Some people think that divinity or theology or the God that those things seek to address, that 
that God only has to do with mental faculties, great ideas and truths that we mull over. That's part of it. But God is also about the language of affect, of bonding, of connecting, of raw emotion. And that's what happens here, that God is demonstrating a feeling about this son that he has. And that feeling is belovedness. A sacred uh, affective bond, therefore, exists between God and God, between God the Father and God the Son within that triune love. And I want to say the belovedness of Jesus from his father was incredibly formative in the ministry of Jesus. I've asked myself sometimes, uh, in light of the New Testament, how is it possible that any human being can love imbeciles like Jesus loves imbeciles? It's absolutely remarkable. When it comes to dim-witted disciples or bitter antagonists or people that were recidivistic offenders that kept offending in the same ways or people that just didn't understand him, people that rejected him, Jesus was affectively drawn to such people and offered them endless chances and forgiveness time after time. It's a remarkable disposition that he had. Where did he get that loving disposition? Because we lack it, right? We don't love people like that. If they do one thing one time to us, we tend to distance ourselves from them and have more boundaries set up so we don't get hurt again. Jesus was driven toward people with this message and this expression of heaven's affection and love. He learned that from prior belovedness. He came from the source of love himself. That's why John says later in his epistle, God is love. And Jesus is an expression of that love. Jesus came from belovedness and therefore could show belovedness. He could offer that up to people. Uh, the son only sees what the father is doing after all, and so the son loves because the father loves. But what I think is remarkable about this beloved son, or the announcement of his belovedness and of his well-pleasedness, is the timing of it. The timing of the father's words at Jesus' baptism strike me as particularly odd, and some might even say inappropriate. Why? Because how could he be well pleased with Jesus at this point? Jesus hadn't done very much of anything other than wade into water. All that Jesus did up until this point is live a fairly typical lower middle class Jewish life as a contractor. With you I am well pleased. That's all he had done up until this point. There have been no miracles, no magnificent sermons, no aphorisms, no confrontation of power structures, no exorcisms, no vicarious death, no resurrections. He hadn't yet fixed the world. All he did was wade into a dirty river with other sinners. And yet at this moment, before his whole ministry began, the heavens declare, not his friend, you know, who was being baptized next to him, but the heavens declare, the Father declares, with you I am well pleased, and you are beloved. My simple point here is this. Belovedness in Scripture always, always precedes behavior. Belovedness precedes behavior. And in fact, creates behavior, inspires, enables behavior. I think that this is very often opposite in human experience. I find that for many of us, particularly if we grew up in scrutinizing families, belovedness is gained or earned only after you have proven yourself a worthy recipient of it, only after you succeed, only after you prove something. 
I was uh, with parents a few weeks ago who don't live here. Don't worry, it's none of you. Parents who said regarding their household culture, if that was their language, I thought that was funny. Household culture, particularly with child rearing, this is what they said. This is their, the dictum that they live by. We believe in high expectations for our children in every single area of life. I said, well, that's a huge mistake and completely contrary to the Christian gospel. I couldn't help it. I saw the words flying out of my mouth, and before good sense and decorum could reach them and pull them back, there they were insulting these parents. But let me tell you how pathetic and ridiculous and psychotic that statement is. I wonder if the parents are living that way. I wonder if they have every aspect of their, of their life completely meeting the standard of excellence. Everything has to be excellent. Everything. Really? Do you live that way? Do you know any human being who lives that way? Every area for your children so they have to get good grades and succeed in sports and have amazing friendships and eat perfectly balanced meals and don't sneak candy and only watch edifying shows on Netflix and volunteer with cheerfulness and spend money both frugally and generously at the same time to be good at math and English? Talk about the law. That's not even possible. Excellent in every area. Utter psychosis. But that's how m some people experience love. Only if I'm excellent. Only if I prove it. Only if I measure up in everything. Then finally I'll be worthy of something. A little attention. A little affection. Somebody saying they don't hate me. That they're proud of me. A lot of people live under that. And that is no way to live. And it's completely contrary to the Christian gospel. This is why it's so significant that Christian baptism, the declaration of our pardon and washing, happens at the beginning of the Christian life, not at the end of it. People like Constantine the Great, so-called, who was baptized, by the way, by an Arian priest and a heretic, but um, uh, Constantine the Great was baptized on his deathbed because he believed that he had to be ethically near perfect before he would warrant baptism. That's the opposite way of thinking about it. Baptism is when you bring your whole self as you turn to God and perfectly believe in perfectly. You are claimed by a perfect Christ whose mercy is perfect when you are not. And you've got a long way to go in this journey. That's why it happens at the beginning to send the message that belovedness precedes behavioral alteration. Always. It occurs at the beginning to remind us that this whole enterprise rests on grace, not upon our own personal change. And so Jesus, right from the start, is declared beloved. And that beloved connection with his Father inspires his whole ministry and keeps him solid when all of life gives way around him. Speaking of life giving way around him, we have to shift to affliction, where we have a sudden juxtaposition change in scenery. This is verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. Now, Mark's rendition of the temptation account is very, very simple. Mark is very terse in his gospel, only reports the facts that, he's, that he knows about or he's interested in. Luke and Matthew explain and expand the temptations, and you get to see what those individual temptations were. Nevertheless, there's a lot going on in this scene, a lot of background Bible data in the baptism and temptation of Jesus. Here's some of it. Jesus, by being baptized and going into the wilderness, is in some ways echoing or presently representing Israel's own big story. Remember, they had a water miracle too in 
the parting of the Red Sea, and then they went into the wilderness to be tested. Also, there's echoes of the first Adam here. Only Jesus and Adam before him were tempted directly, not indirectly, but directly by a manifestation of Satan. Adam fails the test. Jesus passes the test. And so we have the second Adam contrasted with the first Adam. But that aside, I want to note one particular thing about Jesus' temptation, and that is the one who drove him to it, namely the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. It said immediately, like as soon as the baptism is over, okay, it's on to the next thing, and this next thing is going to be very, very difficult. You're going into the wilderness. Now, the Holy Spirit, the creative worker of the Godhead, immediately drives him there because Jesus, in order to be fully human, had to understand the full gamut of human experience and affliction, which happens in temptation, where you are offered um, a promissory escape from the agonies of life through leaning into the dark side. And so Jesus has offered a variety of temptations that would, that would uh, lure him to embrace rebellion. Now, I just think it's really fascinating that the same Holy Spirit that descended upon Jesus as a dove in his baptism then compels Jesus to enter the difficult place. And my only point in mentioning this to you is sometimes we very faultily associate God's Holy Spirit or God's will, God's activity, God's energy, God's action, God's movement with good things, pleasant things, sunny days, getting into the right school, getting the promotion, having your children all well-adjusted and everything else. That's God. And everything that is the antithesis of that is God's absence. But it's just not so clear-cut. Sometimes we are brought into situations that are way above our heads that, that make us feel conflict, that test us, that test our mettle. And sometimes that's the action of the Holy Spirit too, not just the win, but also the difficulty. That's part of the biblical corpus. That's why the, the cross in the New Testament is the emblem and symbol for Christian experience that sometimes bits of us die, and it's hard, it's afflicting, and sometimes bits of us see sunnier days and are risen. But nevertheless, the Holy Spirit does this, brings Jesus to the wilderness to be tested, and he passes the test, but not before he suffers from it. You know, it's funny, the New York Times, uh, years and years ago, back when, do you know Joel Osteen? You know, Joel Osteen, yeah? Yeah? Great hair, bad theology. Okay, Joel Osteen uh, uh, had a book, published a book called Your Best Life Now. And this reviewer of the book, who was Jewish, uh, writes these words. Pastor Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now, was published during Lent, when, ironically, Jesus was having his worst life then. I thought that was awesome. I thought it was so funny. Um, but here's the point. Belovedness does not mean immunity. Belovedness does not mean immunity. And when you are suffering, when you are in your own agony, that does not mean that you are not loved. That is not the absence of love. It's just fallenness. It's just the world. And the world is thus. And so, belovedness never means immunity. Jesus had to be tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And he was. But belovedness also means that Jesus did not lose himself in this satanic affliction. The sense that he had of himself stayed strong. 
Because of his loving bond with God, he could answer every one of the devil's temptations with, it is written. Meaning, I know who inspired my Bible, and I know where your dark inspiration lies. And I see the contrast between the two. It is written again and again. So, belovedness meant that Jesus had a certain security about him. By the way, if you had parents that were audaciously loving and supportive of you, you've been given a great gift because you got a little sample of what belovedness really means. But if you didn't have that, the belovedness of God is sometimes going to seem very elusive. And that's why we need somebody, a preacher or a friend, to constantly proclaim God's belovedness over us because if we didn't get it at home, we got to get it somewhere. And you got to hear that you're loved. And Jesus knew that he was loved, so he was secure in himself. Similarly, I think we can be too when we know that. And that's why I want to close by talking about the power of belovedness when it comes to you. So I mentioned the scene about belovedness at Jesus' baptism, his affliction during his temptation, and now the power of belovedness in this present moment for everybody here. Uh, Galatians 4 is a beautiful chapter in Scripture because Paul says that because Jesus was the true Israelite, the true son of the Father, he has made it possible through his death and resurrection to adopt more kids and to make you into family. So Galatians 4 says this, because you are sons, and he's using the word son not just to refer to men, but because Jesus was called the son, so he's making connection. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Meeting this adoption by grace is shared very liberally so that all of us who are not sons by divine nature can become sons and children through adoption and grace. And therefore, when God looks at you, he is not repulsed. When God looks at you, he says to himself, I am well pleased. Well pleased because of your attachment to Jesus. That makes you awash in his innocency. You are a son. You are a daughter. And therefore, you are beloved. And he holds us in a tie that will not, that will not be rent asunder. No matter what comes in this life, you are secure in the belovedness of your father who says, you are mine and I will never, ever, ever, ever let you go. Now, what is going to get you through the insufferable afflictions of the next five years? or the next 50 years. Because life is full of Lenten, barren places and arid wildernesses. And within these dire contexts, we will be tempted and enticed to take a million shortcuts and eat forbidden fruit, anything to numb the pain and self-soothe within the everlasting garden of sin. And sometimes we just will. We will fold and compromise and lose our nerve more frequently than we can yet fathom because we, while Christians, are not Christ and we will not always triumph over the assaults of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so what can hold us in the midst of our failure? What can keep us from cynicism, spite, or suicide? Only one thing, knowing that you are the beloved of God that you are the beloved of God, hearing and rehearing that we are the ones for whom Christ died and we are beloved to the hilt. And belovedness dictates destiny. When you know that you are loved like that, life can open up 
in new and gorgeous ways. I will uh, close with this little story that I learned about two days ago, a true story. Uh, Back to my friend Alan, the priest with the broken Martin guitar. The teenager who broke his guitar was not, in fact, Alan's own son. It was the neighbor kid named David who visited the rector's children every day. The rector is not rich by any stretch, but he lives in a very wealthy suburb where life is very hard for him financially. And David, his teenage neighbor, lives in a McMansion next door. Do you know what a McMansion, you know, that they build in two days? And there's like six bathrooms and three bedrooms. It doesn't make sense, but it's a McMansion. and it, Yeah. Um, well, David's parents are high-powered attorneys that are never home. They never cook. And they have no evident interest in their son. David feels the neglect rather acutely, so he's sort of an angry young man. And he acts out in a peculiar way by taking his iPhone that they bought for him and throwing it at things. It's just, it's it's how he, I mean, you have your own thing. You have your own way of expressing aggression. He just throws expensive hardware. I mean, that's his jam. Um, So several weeks prior to the Martin guitar incident, David threw his iPhone and dented the hood of his father's Mazda 3. Okay, they were rich, but they were sort of cheap. Mazda 3. Um, I'm not judging. Um, David's father, hearing it, ran outside and screamed that kid up one side and down the other, calling him every single cuss word you can possibly imagine and some beyond your imagination absolutely devastated and destroyed his son to the point where you could hear it uh, a block away, which is where Alan's rectory is. Well, a few days ago, Alan's own teenage children were talking with David about that unfortunate Mazda event, and David got so triggered by recalling the anger that he yet again took his iPhone and threw it across the room and struck the Martin guitar with such force that it cracked the body of the instrument right in half, ruining it. That's when Alan's own son yelled out, my dad's going to kill you. Much to his credit, David, the angry teenager, came upstairs to Alan's office to confess the crime. But before he could get the words out, he just burst into Conflicted teenage hot tears. You cried them. You know what that's like. And my gospel-ridden friend, Alan, who grew up in a hellish home, looked at this young kid, and he said to him, David, bud, it's just a thing, and we don't love things. We love you. It doesn't matter. You always have a place here with us. I was very moved by the story, and I told my friend Alan, I think you may have just changed that kid's life forever. And my friend is quite humble. He said rather frugally, I don't, I don't know about that, but I do know that every kid needs somebody to love them. But Alan's office in that moment became a house of the father. 
for the extension of belovedness to somebody who really needed it. And that's you. And that is certainly me. Because we are the kid who suffers with a heart full of pain, who throws phones and breaks lovely things into pieces. But Christ, the beloved son who was in fact afflicted for us, tells us that we are immortally beloved. That we really can get through, no matter what happens, no matter how we fail, we can get through and we can learn and we can figure some stuff out and we can begin to walk with a little newness and with a sunnier vision. We can live another day, strive another day, endure another day because we are beloved and belovedness determines destiny and you are eternally the beloved of God. Amen. Amen.